Remember that at this point in this gospel, Jesus is done teaching the crowds and the multitudes. Jesus is done even specifically instructing and teaching his immediate disciples. Jesus is now focused on going to the cross. Jesus is determined to go to the cross to fulfill God's glorious plan of salvation. At some point on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus stops to pray. Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays to the Father. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for his glory, for the glory of the Father, and for the fulfillment of the life-giving mission that the Father has sent him on. Then in verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. Jesus prays for those immediate disciples and he prays for their unity for their protection, for their sanctification, for their future mission, as we talked about last week. Now, for this morning, we're going to turn our attention to verses 20 to 26, where Jesus prays for all believers of all time. Jesus prays for anyone and everyone who would ever place their faith and trust in Him based upon the truth of the gospel message. John chapter 17, we want to, again, take the time to read the chapter in its entirety that we hear this precious prayer. As we read, though, pay special attention to verse 11, which we did not cover last week, which speaks to our unity in Christ. And pay special attention to verses 20 to 26 as Jesus prays for all believers of all time. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. 
because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are them, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we study. Gracious Father, we do pray and ask for your help. Help us to now rightly discern and to understand Jesus' beautiful prayer for us. Give us now focus and attention. Grow us in our understanding of, in our knowledge of, in our experience of unity. Grow us in the way we understand and rejoice in your perfect love for us and help us to rightly long for glory, to rightly long for heaven when we will see and stand amazed at your love and amazed at your beauty and your glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen. It was built for an international exposition or for a world fair. But when the structure was completed, the citizens of the city referred to it as monstrous. So outraged were they by its presence, they demanded that it be torn down as soon as the exposition was over. And yet from the moment of its conception, its architect took great joy, great delight in his structure. He took pride in it. He loyally defended it against all those who wished to destroy it. He believed it was destined for greatness. And he was right. Today it is regarded as one of the architectural wonders of the modern era. And in the eyes of the present world, it stands as the primary landmark of Paris, France. The architect was Alexander Gustav Eiffel. And his famous tower was built in 1889. Now as we come to the New Testament, we read of another architect, an architect possessing great loyalty to his structure, his building, his church. To the world, the church may look like a colossal blunder, 
To the world, the, the, the church may be laughed at, mocked, joked about, ridiculed, but to the architect himself, it is dearly loved and cherished. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are loved. You are cherished. You are cared for. You are guided. You are guarded by Christ. In fact, in Christ, you are loved by God, I suspect, more than you know. However great you imagine God's love to be for you, I assure you, it is greater. It is deeper. It is more profound. It is gloriously wonderful. Jesus loves his church. He loves his people. He has given his life for his bride to redeem her, to purify her. Christ is the head of his church. And in every way, the church belongs to him. And Jesus knows that his church, his structure, his people are destined for greatness because they will share in and experience His glory. Jesus Christ, by virtue of His life, death, burial, and resurrection, has brought His people together into one body, the church. And here in John 17, Christ both guarantees and prays for The unity of his people. Look with me again at verse 11. Towards the end of verse 11, Jesus makes this prayer, this request to the Father, saying, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. As believers, as a church family, we should aspire to, and please note this on your outline, we should aspire to persistently live out the unity that Christ has established. We should aspire to live out this glorious, profound unity that Christ has established. Now, even as I say and mention that word unity, I realize that it perhaps comes with a lot of baggage, that people define unity in a host of different ways based upon different things. It is one thing to call for unity. It is one thing to speak well of unity. It is an entirely different thing to define it and to explain how we arrive at and how we achieve unity. I'm afraid that in the day and age in which we live, there's a lot of fuzzy thinking as it relates to this topic of unity. And so this morning, we want, we, we, uh, we want to explore what, what Jesus says here. And we want to talk about the existence of our unity and the example for our unity. Please note this on your outline. I think this is important. The existence of our unity is already a reality in Christ. It is, it, is, it is significant to note that when Jesus prays in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name that they may be one. That little phrase, may be one, is in the present tense. It is, it is in the present tense, which means that Jesus is not saying, Father, keep them in your name so that maybe someday, off in the way distant future, maybe someday my people will be one. No, Jesus is saying, Father, keep them in your name so that they may continue to be one. Please note this on your outline. Jesus prays that the Father will keep and preserve the unity he's already established in his people. 
Christ has already brought his people together into his precious body and has made us one. This is a beautiful truth that we see throughout scripture. Everyone who is in Christ is one in Christ. In Christ we are brought together into his body, his family, and we are made one in him. The Apostle Paul would explain this glorious and profound truth in Ephesians chapter 2. I think this is on your outline where Paul writes, and he, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off, referring to the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, referring to the Jewish people. For through him we both, that is Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are fellow citizens. We are brought together into the family of God. This is why later in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul would say that we must bear with one another in love, listen, so that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, that we would maintain the unity that Christ has already brought about and established. We do not, on our own, create unity. We maintain it. We protect, we preserve, we rejoice in and over what Christ has already done. When it comes to unity, ours is not a creating responsibility, but a preserving one. Jesus has made his people one. He has brought us to himself. He has made us one. And listen, this is not merely organizational unity. This is not merely some kind of denominational unity. It is true, real, spiritual unity that is found in Christ and Christ alone. Jesus has given us his spirit to live in us. We are placed into his body. So all true believers, all true Christians, whether we know it or not, whether we feel like it or not, we are one in Christ. Because of his work. This is the reality of what Christ has done according to his redeeming work and placing us into his body. It is not my job. It is not your job to bring into existence something that does not already exist. It is our job as a church family to protect, to preserve, to maintain that which Jesus has already created through his life and redemptive work. So again, to reiterate, Jesus does not ask the Father to make us one, but to keep us one. How is this to be achieved? Look again at verse 11. Father, keep them in your name. Father, keep them in your name. We are to be kept in the Father's name. But this raises the very obvious question. What does that mean? What does it mean to be kept in the Father's name? What exactly is Jesus praying for here? Well, I think the key to understanding this goes back to verse 6, where Jesus talks again about the Father's name. Jesus prays in verse 6, saying, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And here it is. They have kept your name word. Jesus manifested the Father's name. Jesus showed them. He revealed
revealed to them the person and the work and the character of God and the disciples. They had received that truth. They had kept that word. Jesus reiterates this again in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus gave them the Father's word and they received it. Jesus gave them the truth concerning himself and they received it. Jesus seems to be saying that our unity is preserved and protected by God according to truth. According to the truth that Christ has revealed, that he has explained. And this seems to be what was on the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul. When later in Ephesians 4, he would say this, and he gave the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Listen, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Why did God give the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints? Yes, but for what purpose? For how long? To what eventual goal until we all attain to the unity of the faith? And in this verse, please remember that the faith does not refer merely to your experience of faith, but to the faith, the doctrine of the faith, the truths of the Christian faith. Christ wants us to grow in our unity of the faith, the truth that we have come to believe and to embrace and to accept. So here's what this means. This means that we are not unified here at Harbor Shores Church because we all share a loyalty to a particular sports team, whether it be the Indianapolis Colts, whether it be uh, the Pacers, whether it be the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, uh, and, and by the way, shame on you. Some of you don't cheer for the 49ers. I'm just kidding. That's fine. You are free in Christ to cheer for whatever football team you desire. We are not unified here, 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 here at Harbor Shore Church because we all just adore uh, science fiction. And, we, and, and we've all come to the conclusion that Star Wars is way better than Star Trek. And so we're all devoted and we're all committed. We're unified in that. We're not unified because we all agree that classical music is just wonderful and that Beethoven was the single greatest composer who, who ever lived and that unifies us. No, we are not unified because our kids happen to play together on the same soccer team and we just enjoy hanging out so much together that we are unified. No, brothers and sisters, our unity is profound. Our unity is based on something gloriously eternal in Jesus Christ, in Him, in His finished work. If you are in Christ and I am in Christ, then together we are in Christ as members of His body. Jesus prays that our unity would be preserved that we would be kept in the Father's name, in the truth that Jesus has revealed and that we have believed. Number two on your outline, we need to consider the example for our unity because this is amazing. The example for our unity is found in God himself in the Trinity, in, in the very Trinity, in the Godhead. Look again at verse 11. Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. 
And this is not the only time that Jesus would pray for this, that Jesus would pray regarding this amazing unity. Look, look, look uh, again at verse 20 and 21. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Jesus prays that our unity would reflect in some way the unity that exists in the Godhead. The unity that exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. In some way we are to model and show the unity that exists in God Himself. Now this is admittedly a little bit overwhelming. This is a lot for us to try to take in. Uh, How can we model and show unity that somehow reflects and is modeled after the unity of the Trinity? What is Jesus praying for exactly here? How can we get our hands around this? This morning I want to give you six characteristics of, of Christian unity that I pray will help us as we think through this very important topic. Firstly, note this on your outline, Christian unity preserves the uniqueness of the persons involved. Or we could say it like this, Christian unity preserves the identity of the persons involved. If our unity is to reflect the Trinity, well, we see that in the Trinity, the Father is still the Father. He is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They are, in the mystery of the Trinity, one God existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so what Jesus prays here for is very clearly not uniformity. Jesus is not praying for uniformity. Christ does not want us to lose or to give up our individual identity, the distinctiveness, the uniqueness of our God-created personalities. Please do not ever confuse Unity with uniformity. Jesus does not want this. He does not pray for this. Unity respects and cherishes the God-created diversity in the people of God. And there is diversity in the people of God. As you well know, Christians share and enjoy a variety of things. A variety of, of recreational pursuits. Christians have different political opinions and ideas. Christians enjoy different hobbies. Some Christians are extroverts. Some Christians are introverts. Some Christians are immensely intelligent and intellectual. And other Christians cheer for the Chicago Cubs. I'm looking at a few of you right now. I'm just kidding. Go Cubs. That's fine. But you get the point, right? Some, 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 some Christians are, are skilled with their hands. Some Christians are, are very artistic. Some Christians are very heady and are, and are analytical. And that's wonderful. As you look across any local body of believers, there should be a healthy dose of diversity. And as you look across the universal body of the body of Christ, there is much richness in the diversity of the body of Christ. I've used this analogy before, but I ask you to please indulge me and let me 
use it again. On the screens uh, behind me, there will be a picture of, of the Golden Gate Bridge. I have a great affinity for, for the Golden Gate Bridge. I grew up just a little bit north of San Francisco. My brother currently works uh, security on, on the Golden Gate Bridge. It is a fascinating structure. It is one of the most recognizable landmarks in the world. And the Golden Gate Bridge is a marvel of engineering brilliance. Listen to how one man described it. It is built to sway some 20 feet at the center of its one-mile suspension span. The secret to its durability is its flexibility that enables this sway, but that's not all. By design, every part of the bridge, its concrete roadway, its steel railings, its cross beams, is inevitably related from one welded joint to another up through the vast cable system to two great towers and two great land anchor piers. The towers bear most of the weight and they are deeply embedded in the rock foundation beneath the sea. In other words, the bridge is totally preoccupied with its foundation and this is its secret. Flexibility and foundation. And brothers and sisters, that is a good example for us. Flexibility and foundation. We are to be a people that is immensely preoccupied with our foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are devoted to Him. We are committed to Him. We are immensely preoccupied with Him. But built into our fellowship, there must be a lot of sway. There must be a lot of sway. There must be allowance for individual freedom and expression of conscience and giftedness. This is why there must be respect and love among the individual members of Christ's body. As we are united in Christ, yes, but there are many ways in which we are different from one another. Not only that, please note this on your outline, Christian unity prioritizes the truth of God's word. Christian unity prioritizes the truth of God's word. And you will not be surprised to hear me say that. We've already hinted at this several times this morning, but it's obvious all three members of the Trinity are passionate about the truth, are committed to the truth. Titus 1-2 says that God the Father never lies. Hebrews 6.18 says that it is impossible for God to lie. The Father is, is clearly committed to the truth, and so is God the Son. In John 1.17, we are told that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In John 14.6, Jesus said that He was the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is committed to truth and so is the Spirit at least three times in John 14, 17, in John 15, 26, in John 16, 13, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. The Godhead is committed to truth and if our unity is to reflect the Trinity, we must be a people committed to the truth, to walking and living and speaking according to truth. Unity is firmly fixed in truth. Not only that, note this on your outline, Christian unity pursues God's purposes. Christian unity pursues God's purposes. Throughout the Bible, we see that the Godhead is united in purpose to accomplish their glorious 
plan of redemption. God the Father planned our salvation. God the Son came and died and rose again, conquering sin and death. God the Holy Spirit now convicts of sin. He opens hearts and minds to be receptive to the truth of the gospel. There is perfect unity as they work together. And if our unity is to reflect the unity of the Trinity, we must have a unity of purpose. And simply put, our purpose in all things is to glorify God. Our purpose in all things, brothers and sisters, must be to glorify God. And we must be united together in that purpose. And so we glorify God as we worship together in spirit and in truth. We glorify God as we love and serve and edify and build up each other. We glorify God as we pray for one another, as we bear one another's burdens. We glorify God as we together Make the gospel known as we leave this place and we serve as ambassadors for Christ that all may come to know Him and to see Him. We are unified in accomplishing God's purposes, which is His glory and the advancement of His kingdom. But not only that, noted on your outline, Christian unity perseveres in love. Christian unity perseveres in love. The fact is, there is great love and affection within the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Spirit, they, they love one another from eternity past. The Father, Son, and Spirit were in loving fellowship with one another. Please never think about the Trinity as a giant, mechanical, feelingless computer that is just pumping out equations. That is not an accurate or helpful way to think about God. There is great love and affection that has existed from eternity past between the Father, Son, and Spirit. What does this mean for our unity? It means we must love one another. We must love one another. And we must love one another, not according to our definition of love, but according to God's definition of love. Because God is the one who gets to define love. God who is love. God who is eternal. He gets to tell us what love is. And He has told us in His Word that we would love like He loves, sacrificially laying down our lives for the good of those around us. Us that we would always be patient, kind, forgiving, long-suffering, thinking the best of one another, showing preference to one another. And by this unity of love, we show the world that we are indeed followers of Christ. Jesus said, as you well know in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I've said this before. I I think this is a message that maybe needs to be communicated to the people of Harbor Shores even on a weekly basis. But I say this again and I say it with full biblical authority. You have to love me. You, you, you do. You, you have to love me. When I am hard to love, when I am annoying and opinionated, when I say stupid things, when I fail to be thoughtful and considerate, you have to love me and I 
have to love you. I have to love you. We are in Christ. If you are in Christ and I am in Christ, then we are in Christ. We are in this together in His body to love and to serve and to partner with one another, reflecting and showing the grace of God and the glory of God and the love of God that has been poured out in our lives. So there is to be a unity of love as we persevere in loving one another. Not only that, please note this on your outline. Christian unity proves the validity of Jesus' claim. Christian unity helps to prove the validity of Jesus' claim. Jesus seems to explain this in verse 23, where he says, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that, here's the reason, so that the world may know that you sent me. Few people today doubt and deny the existence of Jesus. Few people doubt that Jesus ever lived as a historical figure. But many, many deny and reject his true identity. Many deny and reject his self-declared reason for coming to earth. People will gladly, and you, you know this, people will gladly tolerate Jesus as some kind of a spiritual guru, a mystic, a healer, a prophet, a magician, a radical, a martyr, a sage, a socialist, a good teacher, an idealist, but God in the flesh? The way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father? Not so fast. Not so Fast. The fact is the world presently denies Jesus' true identity and his reason for coming, but our love, our unity in Christ must be, should be, ought to be a testimony to the world that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. That Jesus accomplished exactly what he claimed to accomplish. And one day at the end of the age, when the people of God are shown to be, as Jesus describes here, perfectly one, then the world will see. The world will know. The world will be forced to confess that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God, the one sent by the Father. Our unity ought to prove, demonstrate, and testify to the truthfulness of the claims that Jesus made about himself. Not only that, note this on your outline, Christian unity proclaims the depth of God's love. Christian unity proclaims the depth of God's love. Jesus says again in verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus looks forward to a time Jesus looks, looks forward to a time when, when the world will see and the world will know beyond any doubt that God has poured out His love upon His people, that God has loved His children and has protected them and has guarded them and has brought them together into His body and they will see the magnitude of God's love that God loves His people, us, just like he loves his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the world presently think about Christians? Does the world presently think that we are children of God? 
that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we are loved by God, that we are redeemed for the glory of God. No, we are regarded as fanatics. We are regarded as crazy people, as those who embrace and believe in fairy tales. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, we are fools for Christ's sake. We are regarded as fools. And yet here Jesus prays as he looks forward to a time when we are perfectly united in him, when the world will see and will know that Christ, that God, has loved us as He loves His Son. How does the Father love the Son? The Father loves the Son with an eternal love, an infinite love, a full love, a complete love, a love that longs to see His Son honored and in glory. And this this staggers the imagination. Rather, I should say this ought to stagger us. This ought to cause us to respond in humility and wonder Because I know myself, and I trust you know yourself, and you know your sinfulness, and I know my sinfulness. And so to think that I could be loved by God the way that God loves His Son is an immense thought, is a glorious thought. And I know that I am not worthy of such love. And brothers and sisters, this is our position in Christ, that the Father has loved us. And He has called us to Himself and He has put us in His body and He lavishes His love upon us in Christ. We are far closer to God than we realize. In Christ, our salvation is far greater. It is more glorious than I think we imagine. In Christ, we are more loved than than we know. And as an outgrowth of that love, Jesus prays for us now in verses 20 to 26 that we would see and know and experience his glory. Look again at verse 24. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In light of Jesus' prayer here, We should, we ought, note this on your outline, we should passionately long for the glory that is to come. We should passionately long for the glory that is to come. I'm sure this will come as no surprise to you. The vast majority of Americans believe in heaven and fully expect to go there when they die. And yet, even among professing Christians, it seems like we give very little thought to heaven. And this could be, perhaps, because we live in the day and age of instant everything. I mean, we have just access to anything and everything we could ever want or desire, and we want it now. Whether it's our oatmeal, we have instant oatmeal. Coffee, instant coffee. We have microwave popcorn. We have instant online streaming of movies and TV shows. We get instant news and updates on our smartphones. We have instant social interaction through our Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter accounts. We want instant pleasure. And whenever we experience pain, we want instant relief from that pain. The only thing we are willing to defer is payments. But heaven is future glory. Heaven is delayed gratification. Now, I'm not saying that, again, we don't want to go to heaven. We just don't want to go today. There's an old spiritual that says everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. And to be sure, that is a problem. But there's another problem, and it goes like this. Everybody going there ain't talking about it. And we ought to be. 
We ought to be. We should be looking forward to the joy and the glory that is to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis once said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is because Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. I think he's right. Greater devotion, greater worship, greater service comes from thinking about heaven, about the glory that is to be revealed one day. And so in the couple minutes, and we have just a couple minutes left, I want to take some time to think about some of the things that Jesus articulates here about the glory to come. Firstly, please note this on your outline. Number one, heaven is in its existence, is an absolute certainty. Heaven is an absolute certainty. It is very obvious that in Jesus' heart and mind, heaven was a certainty. Jesus longed to ascend back into heaven. He longed for His children to be with Him in glory. Jesus said in verse 24, Father, I desire. Father, I desire. Jesus desires to see the completion of God's glorious plan. But brothers and sisters, we all know this. We have in our lives unfulfilled desires. And maybe this is going to be an unfulfilled, unmet desire of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps all that Jesus is saying here is just expressing a really nice thought. Just just a really nice idea. Maybe all Jesus means by this is, Father, I desire that maybe someday, if if it's convenient, if it's possible, that maybe my children could one day go to glory. Is that what we are to think? That Jesus is merely expressing some nice thought, some mere desire? Not at all. Jesus here is expressing the decree of His will. This word, translated as desire, is the Greek word thelo. It expresses purpose, determination, a decree, a deliberate act of the will. Jesus is not merely expressing a wish. He is stating His sovereign will. And what the Son of God declares, what the Son of God wills, He brings to completion. Remember the power and the authority of Christ. In Hebrews 1.3 it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Jesus holds the universe together, and so what the Son of God decrees, the Son of God accomplishes because He possesses divine power and authority. The truth is, the certainty of heaven is established by the effectual praying and by the redemptive word work of God the Son. Jesus can will heaven and decree heaven because he will go to the cross to purchase it and to guarantee that his children will be with him in glory. It is a reality. Number two on your outline, heaven in its population has a redeemed citizenship. Heaven in its population has a, has a redeemed citizenship. Who is it that goes to heaven? Heaven is a certainty, but who will go there? What is it that gets a perfect to heaven? Is it by doing good to others? Ethical living, telling the truth, putting in a full day's work, going through confirmation, baptism, taking communion, hours in a confessional, the lighting of candles, having more good works than bad works. What is it that gets a person to heaven? Here's the simple answer. Perfect righteousness. 
perfect righteousness is what gets someone to heaven. We must be clothed in perfect righteousness. And this, of course, means that if your hope of heaven depends upon yourself, you have no hope of heaven. If my hope of heaven depends upon Chris Fritz, I have no hope of heaven because I do not possess perfect righteousness on my own. I am thoroughly and utterly sinful, which is precisely why Jesus came. Jesus came. He lived the life we could not live, a life of perfect righteousness and holiness and godliness. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die, taking upon himself the wrath of God for us in our place. Jesus rose victorious from the grave. And so the Apostle Paul summarizes the work of Christ so beautifully when he says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who goes to heaven? Those who are washed, cleansed, made righteous by Christ. Heaven is populated by those that God has redeemed, by those that God has saved and cleansed. And this is a humbling truth, a humbling reality, because we recognize we cannot save ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. So here's what this means. One day, when all God's people are gathered together in glory, there will not be even one person who looks around heaven and says, you know what? I'm here because I deserve to be here. I have earned and achieved no. Everyone in heaven, in glory, will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will say together that we are here because of His redeeming work. His perfect righteousness, which He has given to us, though we were unworthy. Look again at how Jesus uh, expresses his request in verse 20, where he says, I do not ask for these only, referring to his immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through, through their word. Those who will believe in me. I simply want to ask you this morning, does that include you? Are you part of that group who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ based on the preaching of the gospel? If not, you can do it today. You can ask Jesus to save you, to redeem you, to cleanse you, to give you his righteousness today. Do it even now. All who come to Christ, find him to be a kind, gracious, willing Savior. Lastly, as we close, we need to consider heaven in its beauty boasts of one primary characteristic. Heaven in its beauty boasts of one primary characteristic. There is much that in this life will remain a mystery about heaven. But there is one thing we can say with certainty about heaven. The glory, the joy of heaven is being in the immediate presence of God, beholding his glory. Jesus says this in verse 24. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. The crowning jewel of heaven will will be to be with Christ. Christ to see and to behold his glory. That is what we long for. That is what we look forward to. The fact is heaven is beyond exaggeration because God's glory and joy and love are infinite. And that is what we will experience and share in for eternity. It is safe to say that there will be unimaginable beauty in heaven. It is safe to say that we will thoroughly enjoy fellowship with all the saints of all the ages. It is safe to say 
that we will rejoice to see loved ones again who have gone on before us. It is safe to say that we will enjoy our freedom from sin, freedom from pain and sadness, but the greatest joy of heaven will be God Himself. To see Him, to know Him, and to behold His glory. This is why the psalmist prays in Psalm 16, You make me to know the path of life. And in Your presence there is fullness of joy. Here as Jesus prays, He prays that we would see His glory. That word see is the Greek word theoreo, from where we get our word theater. And it is in the present tense and it speaks of a continual scene. Jesus prays that we would see and that we would continue to see and to behold His, His glory for all of eternity. The fact is, brothers and sisters, as you well know, at this present moment we don't yet see the full radiance of God's glory. But one day we will. One day there will be an end to this present reality. So until that day we walk by faith. Until that day we delight in Christ. We trust our faithful Savior, our High Priest who prays for us. Look at the closing words of Jesus' prayer in verse 26. They are so encouraging, so rich. Jesus says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ prays for us. Christ dwells in us through his spirit. Brothers and sisters, may we persistently live out the unity that Christ himself has established and may we passionately long for the glory that is to come. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love. You have blessed us in profound and eternal ways that we can barely begin to understand. And so we pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of you, in our love for you, and in our love for one another. Father, help us to be faithful to you and to each other as we walk in unity. Help us to not get distracted by the meaningless things of this life, but to continually long for you, for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.